So I will just tell you that if we could turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, right in the middle of the Bible. And to chapter 32. And we'll do three verses, 38 through 40, towards the end of chapter 32. And this morning we will be having more of a topical type sermon. But before we begin, I'll ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we thank you again this morning for the great gift of worshiping you that you have given to those that you have called to yourself. Open the eyes, change the hearts to see the glory, Father, of your Son, Jesus. His glorious sacrifice, his amazing forgiveness, his truth now fully delivered to us through your word. So help me this morning, Lord, to speak truthfully and by your spirit, God. May you do miracles in people's hearts to draw them close to yourself, those who are yours already, and to open newly closed hearts and minds to the truths of the gospel, the salvation that is in Christ alone. Amen. Now, before we begin with our main text there in Jeremiah 32, I'd like to quote one chapter back from Jeremiah 31, a text that's often quoted since it describes the new covenant in the Old Testament very clearly. And the reason to briefly read what is familiar to many is because it relates directly to our main text this morning. So firstly, I will read two verses of Jeremiah 31, starting at 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here in this well-known passage describing the new covenant of grace, God says he will change the hearts of the people so the law of God is written on their hearts. Then he promises he will be their God and they shall be his people. He will forgive sin. So reading that passage is helpful as we go on and read our main passage this morning, one chapter later. In Jeremiah 32, he speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem by the king of Babylon. But then the Lord promises that he will counter the famine, the pestilence, the destruction, and gather the Israelites back from all the countries to which he drove them in his anger and make them dwell in safety. 
Then he begins to once again use new covenant language, as in the first passage we read, Jeremiah 32 at verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And then he continues. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So there we have again God stating he will make an everlasting covenant with them. That's new covenant language and describes its character that he will always be doing them good. Now in here is something very important. God promises, I will not turn away. He will not turn away from doing good to them, doing good to new covenant people. Then he makes another promise to us by finishing with, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So here is one of the few times in the Old Testament where new covenant language is clearly used, although with its usual brevity and an exceedingly important topic is apparent, the fear of God. That's what he's going to put in our hearts we believers, we new covenant people, the fear of God. Notice he says it again in verse 39, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. He's going to give us a new heart to fear him forever. So fearing God is very important. Over in the New Testament, Jesus has some words about the fear of God. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So fear of God is a very serious thing. Actually, it's an amazing gift of God, that new covenant fear, the kind which leads one to salvation, to the throne of grace, and after arriving at the destination of true saving faith in Christ, keeps one close to the throne of grace. Now, the big, big picture about the fear of God comes from the Apostle Paul in Romans. Since most do not have a true fear of God, Paul can look at the world and explain why it is the way it is. Paul warns us of what kind of people we humans are as he goes through his long list of the horrors of sinful mankind. Worthless, evil, deceivers, violent, ruin and misery makers. And then he ends it with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's the key, the fear of God. That's why this is so important. Our verses from Jeremiah. I will give them one heart and one way 
that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. As one reads through the scriptures and sees clearly what a very important topic it is, a person could wonder if in the modern American church there might be less emphasis on the fear of God than the scriptures would suggest. It's safe to say, having no fear in saying it, the love of God, as some would define it, is a much more popular topic. But the fear of God, that's a scary topic. And a person can start feeling unsafe to deal with it. But shouldn't we strongly agree with Jeremiah, the fear of God is an amazing gift to us and central to the new covenant? God giving us one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Now, why do all people fear? Why is it such a large part of life? Ultimately, it's because the world is broken due to sin and importantly, the devil works diligently to magnify fear and any actual resulting evil and suffering. Of course, in creating that fear, he steers people away from properly fearing a God who judges at all and not one who judges strictly according to God's set standards. Now, a major fear for all persons is physical injury, disease, and ultimately death. Another is a fear of lack, food, clothing, and shelter. And importantly, also the fear of loneliness, lacking relationships. And what about the fear of people knowing what's inside me, most particularly my thoughts, glad they aren't constantly projected on a screen for all to see? And that's very challenging to an atheist, to one who doesn't acknowledge there is a God, wrong. The world is not just physical, not just the visible, because it's clear something is wrong on the inside of me, and it's not physical. Now, we tend to focus on what we fear. You may have found this to be true, and thanks be to God, the answer to dealing with fear for any person is to fear God. All those fear problems, the answer is to fear God. Sin is the root of them all, and God is the answer for all. Yet in today's naturalistic Darwinian worldview, God simply does not exist. Yet Paul tells us in Romans that all people are made in the image of God and are believing a lie and suppressing truth because what can be known about God is actually plain to them, clearly perceived in the things that have been made. God's creation, the physical world, which many would say is the only reality, is actually what God says shows them very clearly he does, in fact, exist. He is very powerful and divine. And given the violent, fearful nature 
of much of nature, he is hard to ignore. If you've ever read an insurance policy or rental car agreement, you notice there are often these calamities they refer to, which are outside your control. They're called acts of God. These acts of God are destructive things like earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and lightning fires. Never a warm, gentle breeze or a beautiful sunset, a calamity. So there is a popular view of God when he reveals himself, it's in a fearful way. But in a real sense, it's like peekaboo. You know, when you just show a tiny part of yourself and then hide again? Those calamities are just a very, very tiny display of God's power, and yet they create tremendous fear in people. But what if their heart is so hard no calamity or display of God's creation will cause any actual fear of God. Ask Pharaoh. Even with massive calamities, it was hard to convince him to fear God. So then if a person gets past a pure atheistic view of life and says, well, perhaps there is some type of God out there, this does not result in the proper fear of God the fear which comes from true, saving faith. Rather, God is in the end a loving God. We may do bad things, but never really being all that bad, since God is a loving God, there is no need to ultimately fear God. It's all good. He's good. Per my standard and the culture, of course, a great replacement for fearing God is deciding there is or may be a judging God, but then undertaking efforts to please him to set things right, work to secure a proper position before God, whoever or whatever he may be. I've done bad and good, so it's, it's balanced out. This loving God will see me for who I am, a generally good person. The ultimate extreme of this is extreme law-keeping, like the Pharisees, and especially someone like the unconverted Paul. He really didn't need to balance things out, since he was, by his own admission, blameless in his law-keeping, and therefore right with God. He may have had a strong fear of God, but in his mind, his blamelessness was taking care of it. So with all this fear, what about the love of God, which we all love? Are they opposites, and how do they relate? Well, 1 John chapter 4 gives us some direction. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears 
has not been perfected in love. John says fear has to do with punishment, and fear rightly placed is due to the judgment of God. That is where our fear is most importantly focused on our eternal destiny. But perfect love casts out fear. Believers with their God-loving hearts are to perfectly love others so that, as John says, as he is, so also are we in this world. And if we strive and fight to truly love others that way, then in this world, we have better confidence we are saved, not fearing eternal punishment on the day of judgment. But we are only like that because of God's mercy on us in the first place. So John also reminds us in his letter, we love, love him and others, because he first loved us by sending his one and only son to die for sinners who live in fear of death. So that makes this from Hebrews true about those who then by faith alone believe on Jesus and his atoning death and receive forgiveness. Free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Our love to God is total surrender. It says, not what I will, but what you will, God. That was the love shown by Jesus, the one who submitted perfectly to his Father in perfect fear. And thus Hebrews says about Jesus, he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. And Isaiah writes of him, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Godly fear begins with the heart being awakened by God to his holiness, his hatred of sin, his justice and judgments. Is fear always the first response to God drawing someone to himself? Maybe not. Perhaps a glimpse of his glory in your heart. The birth of awe at his majesty or a nascent agreement. Creation does show his eternal power and divine nature. We know we have taken sin lightly, even loved much of it, but somewhere in our journey to saving faith, our hearts have been awakened by God, and the extent of our sin becomes real to us. Like King David. That Bathsheba thing, it was not in his mind. He ignored it and suppressed it. But then, Nathan the prophet, you are that man. And the fear of God, surely not the first time, but it came in power to David. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And we too, should God awaken our hearts to know him, that most wonderful of things will happen. We will begin to truly fear God. The wisdom and the knowledge we have will begin to be set right. Lies will be exposed and undone. Yes, there is a God. No, this is not man's world he controls, but it's God's world and we are his creation. But wait, we must be sure we are not like James says of other believers. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But we, being drawn to our Lord by his mercy upon our hearts, we shudder, we fear too, but there's a monumental difference. For the demons, there is no redemption, no salvation, nothing but condemnation. But for us humans who are called, that's not us. No, we are being called, we are being mercifully brought to our redemption, certain to be ours, determined even before the creation of the universe. Now this fear, Paul tells us something about it. In Romans 8, when he tells us to live not by the flesh, but by the Holy Spirit, to put to death evil deeds, since we are now sons and daughters of God. He then reminds us of where we came from and where we are now as believers. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So as he speaks to believers here, he reminds them not to fall back into fear, the fear they once had, what Paul calls a spirit of slavery. This means along our way to true saving faith, we did have the spirit of slavery, fearful slavery, fear having to do with God's punishment. The laws of God became real to me as God became real to me. They are true. He does judge. He does punish lawbreakers, sinners. I am in deep trouble. Adam and Eve began with no fear of God, just the opposite. But then sin entered the world through them. Their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. They covered themselves. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Their consciences convicted them, and they began to fear God. And in that moment, they knew of no redemption. They entered into the spirit of slavery, fearing God. The fear of God works in different ways for people. Take Felix in Acts. He and his wife would listen to Paul. It says they often had Paul brought out from the prison to talk with them. But then 
As Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present. Uh, When I find time, I will summon you. Did he ever become a believer or just live in fear? Don't know. Now, importantly for believers, the fear of God remains, but not the slavery. As we read, a new and wonderful release from slavery to fear, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that glorious adoption, when you profess true, saving, God-given faith in Christ, and his sacrifice for your sins on that cross, bleeding and dying for you, now a son or daughter of the king, the scriptures have much to say. Hope, rejoicing, and goodness with plenty of wonderful, ongoing, daily, godly fear. From our beginning passage, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after me. Over in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So as a believer, what are the wonderful things about fearing God which are yours in Christ? Thinking about these life-changing, guiding, wonderful things the fear of God produces. Some might say it's rather the love of God, my love for God. But perhaps it's because the love and fear of God are two sides of the same coin. God, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. When we realize the great offense of our sin to a holy, perfect God who judges by an eternal hell, it strikes fear in us. But when we realize the staggering cost to bring about forgiveness, God sending his one and only son to die horribly and rise spectacularly, what great love we have for our Savior. He promises to keep us, to bring us ultimately to him forever. He is to be worshipped acceptably with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Now something else. Our awakened hearts to love and fear God do not forget when we were slaves to sin. We quickly realize we are still full of sinful desires even after new births. So with a new fear of God, we have a fear of someone else too, ourselves, our flesh. The old man who died, yes, to sin, but still lives our lifelong battle. We share it with Paul 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul knows nothing good dwells in his flesh. He has to choose to obey his flesh or obey God, intimately familiar about who God is to him. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up and are acquainted with all my ways and evil lies close at hand, Paul always wages war against sin, which he says dwells in my members. And so do I, and so do you, if you are a believer. And so Peter tells us how God requires us to live. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, if that's you, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear of judgment leading to hell and eternal fire. If you are a true child of God, saved by his rescuing mercy, no. But what does Paul tell us in Philippians? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So obey, salvation, fear, God working all that in you. Peter reminds us of how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Things like virtue, self-control, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Then he adds to us believers, be all the more confident to confirm your calling an election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, one last fear we suffer from. One of the challenges in fearing God is another powerful competing fear, not speaking of our healthy fear of our flesh, our ever-present internal enemy, but rather lurking on the outside is another powerful fear we have, the fear of man. Not really referring to physical fear of harm from a man or woman, fearing God, fearing your flesh, those we got to keep on fearing. But fearing man, for us, it's mostly a mirage. It's not like those other fears. Because what it really is, it's a lack of the fear of God. Increase your fear of God, down goes your fear of man. It stops us from acting. It silences us from speaking. Question is, where do we get our identity? Our meaning, which defines who we are? Who are we living to please? And where is our treasure? But as we have seen already today, we obey the one we fear the most. After Peter had denied Jesus twice, as they challenged him in the courtyard, his fear of man rose to the maximum. 
he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And this same Peter is later before the Jewish high court told not to speak or teach about Jesus. But this Holy Spirit-empowered Peter says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must decide, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter had decided we must obey God rather than man. God who would die to rescue from sin and death and hell. So is the trap of fearing man easy to escape? Of course not. Does it have to be standing before the Sanhedrin at risk of flogging? No. Probably for us, it's usually just some courage to do basic things. Trusting this from Hebrews. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's really just the normal things in life, rejecting the fear of man in favor of the fear of God in the endless challenges to do so. Is there one other thing about fear to mention? Well, when we read the scriptures, we come across many passages which confirm to us things which await us after we depart this life. Paul tells us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, Believers who by faith alone are covered in the blood of Christ and forgiven, they will inherit eternal life. Unbelievers will, of course, not be treated this way. They will be sent to their eternal home in fire and damnation. So what is the result for believers? A very, very important one. Paul tells us right there, after promising all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged, he continues, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others because we fear for their soul. We know their bitter end should they never fear the Lord and repent. Persuade by all means. Firstly, through the clear proclamation of the gospel, and then, very importantly, living it out. We know what Jesus said about non-believers, how they go about. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, as it's not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. They fear the light. And we believers are reminders of that light if we live properly, like Jesus says, if we let our light shine before others to see our good works, which give glory to God. Proverbs says these things very succinctly. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. And also, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away 
from evil? Do people see us hating evil? A person sees a believer consistently turning from evil, or maybe by Holy Spirit new birth, being very noticeably turned away from evil by something new and strange about them and says, wonder why? Do they now fear and love the Lord? Jesus himself in his teachings brought about the fear of God, but also by his very way of living, by his miracles displaying the power of God, there was great fear. Peter hauls in a gigantic catch of fish when Jesus is with him. Peter doesn't think, now this is the kind of fishing partner I've been hoping for. No. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, we don't usually do miracles like Jesus, but the power of God is hopefully displayed in our daily lives and one day at a time by the preaching and living out the gospel somewhere every day on this earth, this happens. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? Believe, repent, be forgiven, be baptized, and the ongoing work of the church, each believer living in the fear of the Lord. So what Acts says about the church goes on and on and on. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. In our passage this morning, we read of God's everlasting covenant to do us good, giving us believers a new heart so we may fear him forever because he would put the fear of him in our hearts. Then we might turn away, not turn away from him. We will be his people and he will be our God. When Moses was in the desert at Mount Sinai, the thunder and lightning and smoke made the people tremble in fear. And Moses said, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Many people, especially young people, have an I'm in charge, take on the world attitude about life which can be good. I remember having it myself when I was younger. But if it's sailing along in life by embracing the world and its beckoning worldliness, one doesn't realize their shiny new ship that would presumably bless them and keep them has, like the Titanic, already hit the iceberg. In the end, it's not going to ultimately get them where they thought. Even after a strong jolt, which might briefly concern them, they go on dining and dancing as the sinking goes on, unstoppable. You know, just keep going. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Oh wait, oops, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. So when, really, if reality hits, the reality of what awaits, then the dancing turns to a terrifying dread and fear we're going down, way down. But then, the call has come, not for all, but for some, women and children into the lifeboats. There is a rescue, a way to be saved. And the fear that woke them up from their real lost condition turns to hope. So be like one of those children. Hear the call of rescue. Follow like a child. Abandon the sinking ship of a Christless life. The fear of God can be a difficult subject, especially when we think of his justice and eternal hell for the disobedient, for unbelievers. But it's true. And anything true about God, our perfect God, we were made for the purpose of worshiping and enjoying and glorifying anything true about him, the more we understand it and embrace it, the more glorious he is. The more we understand what it is to fear the Lord and why, the more we understand his great love for us. This Jesus, he paid our monumental debt for sin. The very one we sinfully desire to run from because he is so fearful, this holy, righteous God who judges unbelievers with perfect justice in a terrifying, horrible way, this one we would run from and most do run from is the very one we must run to. Who will do away with our fear of judgment because of his perfect love, his perfect love to call and save sinners and make each a new person and from that day forward to hold each with his warm, eternal embrace. So believer, continue to fear God. God, with you there is forgiveness of that you may be feared. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. An unbeliever, may God give you a terrifying fear of his judgments and call you to himself by his mercy, his amazing love to save a sinner. So then you may abide in him and have confidence for the day of judgment because you are living and loving like him. As he is, so also are we. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? 
Father, we thank you for your amazing gift of your Son to us. We thank you for the amazing gift of your word to us that tells us that we must fear this God who is an all-consuming fire, this one who brings about horrible judgments for unrepentant sinners and yet tells us of the amazing, unfathomable mercy and grace of God to save sinners who you call and then begin the life of worshiping you forever and ever and ever, proclaiming your goodness, your glory. Oh, what a great, amazing God we serve. And now we are going to uh, have communion. So if you are a baptized believer, please hold the cup and the bread as we sing, and then we will all partake of the Lord's Supper together.